Supraventricular tachycardias, or SVTs, are quite common in Canada. Rapid recognition of the underlying rhythm is essential to managing this condition, including identifying which patients are good candidates for catheter ablation. I'm Dr. Manisa Walji, Associate Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Lior Bibas, Cardiology Fellow at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. Dr. Bibas co-authored a review article on the diagnosis and management of patients with SVT. I reached Dr. Bibas in Montreal. Welcome, Dr. Bibas. Hey, how are you? Thank you for having me. Can you remind us first what supraventricular tachycardias are and what kind of arrhythmias might be included in this category? So classically, a supraventricular tachycardias or SVT is a term that's uh, reserved for any arrhythmia that originates um, either from within the atria or uh, at the level of the AV node. Um, in our review, we excluded atrial fibrillation because uh, even though it does originate in the atrium or in the pulmonary veins, more specifically, we went according to the ACC HRS new guidelines that uh, in their SVT guidelines, they left off atrial fibrillation um, and they reserved the term SVT for the tachyarrhythmias that we discussed, such as uh, uh, atrioventricular nodal reentry tachycardia, atrioventricular reentry tachycardia, atrial flutter, and atrial tachycardia. Great. So, can you tell us about the frequency and demographic for the disease? Who gets an SVT? So, SVT is uh, is something that's pretty common that many of us have seen in the emergency setting. Um, we don't have uh, good Canadian data in terms of uh, epidemiology of SVT. However, if we look at our neighbors in the south. Uh, SVT, or at least paroxysmal SVT, the prevalence in the general population is about 2 to 2.5 per 1,000 uh, people in the population. Um, there also seems to be, in some retrospective studies, a tendency for certain types of arrhythmia, uh, more common being in women, such as AVNRT and atrial tachycardia. Also, uh, there seems to be a change in proportion of types of SVT presenting in, in the emergency department. Uh, with age, there seems to be more uh, AVNRT or atrial tachycardia. I'm surprised to hear that Canada hasn't collected more data on SVTs in their presentation. What are some of the most important consequences of SVTs and the issues with them going undiagnosed? So SVTs in general, and again, we're talking about AVNRT, AVRT, atrial tachycardia, and atrial flutter, are, are rarely uh, lethal. There is one exception, however. Um, in patients with an accessory pathway, uh, either presenting with a Wolf-Parkinson-White or with an accessory pathway that's not seen on the EKG, there is a risk in this population of sudden death uh, because when these patients develop atrial fibrillation, instead of having their rate limited by their atrioventricular node, if they have a fast-conducting accessory pathway, the AFib can conduct straight into the ventricle and degenerate into ventricular fibrillation. So I would say the patients to be taken most seriously are those with an accessory pathway uh, with or without a Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. How is an SVT usually diagnosed? So the typical presentation of an SVT is in the emergency room department. We do often see patients in the outpatient setting complaining of palpitations. However, when they present, they don't have the arrhythmia going on. And the most important diagnostic step is really obtaining that initial EKG. So most SVTs are properly diagnosed in the emergency department when patients present with palpitations 
and have a rapid heart rate. And, and when an EKG is done, an SVT is diagnosed. So then in that context, what are the first-line treatments for SVT? So the most important step in the emergency room is really to assess the patient's uh, hemodynamic status. If uh, his or her hemodynamic status is unstable, uh, in that case, the most important part is getting uh, the patient out of the arrhythmia. It's very rare for an SVT to cause hemodynamic instability. However, in some patients with underlying cardiomyopathies, underlying um, you know, comorbidities, or severe coronary artery disease, uh, having a heart rate that fast can cause some sort of hemodynamic decompensation or even typical angina. So the first step is really making sure whether your patient is stable or unstable. If the patient is unstable, like I said, you're, you have no choice but to cardiovert him or her. Um, now, if your patient is stable, the most important thing is really to get your 12 EDKG because that's going to really help the cardiologist or the electrophysiologist and the outpatient assessing uh, the type of arrhythmia it is and also what's the best management for it. So once the ECG is obtained of the tachycardia, uh, the next step is, well, trying to terminate it because the patient is, if you present it to the ER, is probably uncomfortable uh, due to his or her arrhythmia. Um, so there's many steps that one can take in order to terminate the arrhythmia uh, that are outlined in uh, figure six in the article. So I, I would say it's always important. Some people always jump the gun to adenosine, but I think it's important to first identify whether vagal maneuvers work or not. Um, I, I think it's important to start with carotid sinus massage. Always start by auscultating uh, both carotids for breweries because it would be contraindicated to do so if there is uh, a brewery. And also, uh, it could be performed on both sides because uh, it's been shown that some patients are more sensitive to their carotid sinus on one side compared to the other. Uh, now, if that doesn't work, another vagal maneuver that we all often do and we often teach our patients is the Valsalva maneuver. Now, both of these maneuvers are not uh, very effective. However, um, when they are, patients can be taught to do it at home and this could prevent recurrent uh, emergency room visits. Now, if vagal maneuvers don't work, uh, the next step would be intravenous adenosine. So the important thing to remember with intravenous adenosine is that it's not a benign drug. Um, it actually sometimes causes severe uh, blocks or asystole for even a few seconds. And there have been a few cases reported of um, malignant arrhythmias or um, severe ischemia due to adenosine. Um, so always make sure before giving adenosine that your patient is well monitored, that you have a defibrillator nearby, and that uh, you're comfortable giving it. Uh, now, adenosine um, terminates more than 90% of SVTs that originate from a circuit involving the AV node. So it's, it works very well for AVNRTs and AVRTs. And in cases of uh, atrial flutter or atrial tachycardia, uh, it actually just slows down the ventricular rate. And in those cases, although it doesn't terminate it, uh, actually gives a pretty big clue in terms of the diagnosis and the, which type of arrhythmia we're, we're dealing with. Finally, if that doesn't work, uh, the ACCHRS guidelines recommend to start either an IV calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker in order to reduce the rate and also act on the AV node. There's probably more evidence in the ER literature for calcium channel blockers like cardizem and verapamil compared to beta blockers um, given IV. And uh, the, the final step is if all that doesn't work, then uh, one could uh, do an electrical cardioversion um, to terminate the arrhythmia.
And in settings outside of the emergency room, are there some other treatment options? So outside the emergency room, what, what usually happens is that the, these patients are referred to cardiology or end up back in their family physician's uh, office with you know, the EKG and the little summary showing that they presented with SVT. And normally by the time we see them, they're back in sinus rhythm and feeling fine. Um, this does cause a lot of anxiety to patients um, and, you know, they're very concerned about it. So I think the important part is to reassure them, but also to take it, you know, to, to take take it in charge and, and manage it properly. And I think the an important step is referring to a cardiologist and uh, or even if you have quick access to an electrophysiologist um, for discussion for ablation, because these arrhythmias are so um, kind of on and off. It's either the heart is going haywire at 170, 180 beats per minute or even more, or they're just back in their sinus rhythm. So sometimes we, we can't really give medications on a continuous basis because then they would just, you know, have too much of a slow heart rate and they wouldn't be able to tolerate it. So for many arrhythmias, the treatment of choice is actually uh, ablation, uh, catheter ablation by electrophysiologists. So you mentioned in your review a little bit about radiofrequency catheter ablation. Can you go through what types of patients might be good candidates for something like this? So, first of all, it depends a lot on patient preferences, you know, because it has to be discussed and they have to agree with, with it. It's it's a generally well-tolerated procedure with, uh, in general, few complications, but it remains an invasive procedure. And so the patient has to be aware of the risks. And um, also, some patients just say, you know what, I could live with it. I have one episode every two, three years, and I don't want to uh, get ablated. However, for some patients with, um, you know, frequent episodes, um, it's even been shown to be cost-effective to go ahead and ablate it, uh, ablate it, and also it improves their quality of life. So I would say for patients with AVNRT and AVRT, or Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, um, and as well as typical atrial flutter, uh, the treatment of choice when they're symptomatic is radiofrequency ablation. So it's an invasive procedure that's done via the femoral vein and artery and usually takes a, a few hours at most. And the success rate is for typical flutter, AVNRT and AVRT is above 95%. There are some SVTs such as atypical atrial flutters or atrial tachycardia that become harder to ablate. Um, in those cases, sometimes a rate control strategy is taken. However, I still think it's worth it for these patients to be assessed because the difficulty of ablation really depends on the electrophysiologist um, assessing the patient. And sometimes they could still ablate the focus of arrhythmia uh, with success. If you could give one message to physicians about supraventricular tachycardias, whether it's a family physician or an emergency physician, what would that be? My main message would be that, you know, SVT, SVT is kind of an umbrella term for a set of arrhythmias that are very different in mechanism. However, their presentation and their management in the acute and in the outpatient setting is very similar. So like I said, in the acute setting, what's important when the patient is stable is really getting that 12 VDKG and getting that diagnosis. And then, you know, going down your algorithm in order to terminate it, in order to relieve the patient's symptoms. Once that's done, I think what's important is referring them to either a cardiologist or an electrophysiologist to discuss their episode and see what they would prefer and see if they'd be interested in, in going for an ablation. I do think that the one group of patients that is 
you know, that one has to be more careful with is the group that presents with an accessory pathway or a Wolf Parkinson White or Delta Wave on their EKG, because those patients need to be uh, fully assessed in order to exclude their risk of sudden death. Usually when we see them, we do a stress test or an electrophysiology study, um, because this is really the only group of patients that has a rate of sudden death, which is, you know, much less than 1%. Just on a final note, I'd like to thank um, my co-authors, Michael Levy and uh, Vidal Esabag. Thanks so much, Dr. Bebas, for being here with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure uh, doing my first podcast. I've been speaking with Dr. Lior Bibas, Cardiology Fellow at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec. To read the review article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.